Welcome to everybody who's new. It's good to see you. We're glad that you're here. Um, we will get started this morning. Our time has gotten short and limited, but uh, God can do good things with a very little amount of time. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to the book of Galatians. Um, if you shoot to the, to the middle of your Bible and start heading right, when you get to the New Testament, you'll find the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. After that, you'll find Acts, the story of the church and the development and, of the church and the spread of the church. After Acts, you'll find Romans, one of the Apostle Paul's letters to the church in Rome, probably the best overall summary and writing on the message of the gospel uh, in the Bible. We've spent a lot of time in Romans 3 for the last few weeks. After Romans, you'll find First and Second Corinthians, two letters he wrote to a church in Corinth, big cosmopolitan church that had a lot of problems, and he wrote a lot of letters to them. Two of them we have in the Bible, four we know he actually wrote, uh, to try to help them sort their life out and figure out how the gospel applies. And after that, you find Galatians. So is that enough time to get there? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians. Um, get to Galatians 4, once you find Galatians. And as you're getting there, I'll, I'll try to give you a flyby as to what happened in Galatians, getting to chapter 4. Uh, Paul had to write this letter to this church in Galatia, which probably wasn't a whole lot different than this church. Uh, they probably had fewer people than this church. Uh, they were made from people from all types of walks of life, all religious histories, all ethnic histories. Galatia was a pretty cosmopolitan town. wasn't the busiest, wasn't the most cosmopolitan, wasn't D.C., it wasn't Atlanta, but it was like Richmond. It was kind of stuck kind of in the middle trying to figure out what its identity was because of the cities that were developing around it. And so this church had sprung up under the preaching of the gospel and, and some things began to happen in the church and the Apostle Paul, out of his love for the church and love for the gospel, wrote this letter to the church in Galatia because there was, there was this group of men, scholars think, or maybe it was a man, but most scholars think it was a group of men who began to influence this church into the fact that they found security in, in the gospel and in the teaching of Jesus and, and felt like they had been saved by the person and work of Jesus, but that to really live the Christian life, to find fulfillment in the Christian life, to be a person who pleased God with his life, they needed to return to the ancient Jewish practices of the Jewish culture. That though you came from a Gentile past, a past that wasn't Jewish in heritage, maybe you came from a different religion, maybe you, you were Greek, or, or maybe you had been Roman, or maybe your family was from another country and you'd been brought into that area, that once you got saved, you were saved But to actually please God and to live the life he wanted, you need to return to the practices of the law and the Jewish tradition. And that made the Apostle Paul really mad. Uh, We spend probably 80% of our time uh, in this church as we preach trying to figure out the ways we act just like those people and try to return to, to rules and regulations that God in Christ has set us free from. But these people had come into this little church who were, who were new, who were growing, who were excited about what God was doing, who were being changed by, by the presence of God and the power of God in their life. And these people were trying to get them to now go back to the law that God had redeemed them from, which we'll, we'll talk about a bit more. And the Apostle Paul got mad. And so if you read the book of Galatians, I, I, I'm not sure, some of you scholars, some of you seminarians uh, can go back and correct me, but there might be more exclamation points in the little letter of Galatians than there are in any other of Paul's letters. I mean, Paul gets absolutely lit up in this book. I think there's six chapters in Galatians, and I think the first three have more exclamation points than any other concentrated area in Paul's writing. He gets so frustrated with what's happening in this church, and not the people, but the influence that's being brought in, and the way that the gospel and the salvation of Christ is being twisted. So he wrote this letter. And in the first three chapters, he, he defends really the message of the gospel and his preaching of the gospel as these people had come in and said that Paul didn't give them the whole truth. 
He gave them Jesus, but not what they needed to live. And, and so Paul is defending his apostleship. He's defending his message. He's defending the gospel. And he gets around to chapter 3, and he begins to, to remind them of the promise that God had made his people in Abraham and, and the promise that God had through Abraham's descendants to bless all the nations of the earth. And, and then he explained the promise wasn't nullified when God came and, and gave his people the law. Through Moses, God gave his people the Ten Commandments and the law that was to guide their lives and set them apart from the nations around them, that they might be drawn to God in worship and his glory might be made known to the nations that surrounded the people of Israel throughout the history of the church. And and Paul was trying to explain that when the law came, it didn't nullify the promise. It actually solidified the foundation the promise was built on because the law was to draw us to our need for God, for his salvation, for his deliverance, because we never could keep it the way that we were supposed to. And so Paul tries to remind them of who God is and what he has done and how the law never was intended to surpass the promise that God gave them, but it was to drive them back to him so that he could greater fulfill the promise that he had given them. And we get to Galatians 3. I didn't turn there. I told you to, but I got too busy explaining to you where it was. And we get to Galatians 3, and we get down to to verse 27. I'm going to read a couple verses, and then we're going to hit chapter 4. We're going to spend our time in chapter 4, but I want to catch you up. And he says that God has now fulfilled the promise that he had told his, spoken to his people. He had fulfilled the promise, and for all of history, God was working for this to happen, and he had fulfilled the promise to bless the nations on the earth, and he fulfilled it in Jesus. And now when people would recognize their sin because of the law, and the law would drive them to recognize their sinfulness, they wouldn't have to run to God in shame and fear, but they could run to God because of Christ. And they were no longer held in slavery to the law because God had set them free in Jesus. And as they ran to Jesus to experience the fulfillment of the promise that God had spoken beforehand to Israel, he had now fulfilled it in Jesus. And they ran to him, they could experience it. And he's going to talk a little bit about that promise. And then he's going to give us a picture about how we approach it and how we relate to it. And then he's going to explain the picture he's going to give us. And in the process, we are going to see one of the most unbelievably precious promises that God has ever given us in relation to the gospel. As we've spent weeks talking about the riches of the gospel and the unsearchable riches that are ours in Christ, I do think this might be the crowning jewel of all of them. I think it oftentimes, this is probably the most missed element of the gospel in the church. I think it's the most dismissed element of the gospel in the church. And as we'll see what Paul says in Galatians and one other passage in Ephesians, it might be the crowning jewel of what God did in Jesus, and we fail to miss it. I'm going to pick it up in the end of Galatians 3, and then we're going to roll. So here's the inheritance that is ours in this promise. For as many of you were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, verse 28 now, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And in chapter 4, he's going to unpack what that means and what God has done for us in fulfilling that promise and how it should transform the way that we live. So I'm going to pray for us real quick because we're getting short and I don't see any lunches. So I don't think you brought your lunch. Um, And the kids are going to get restless. So let me pray for us and we'll go. Jesus, thank you for this precious opportunity that we have to to come together as a people uh, and to again give ourselves to your word. Uh, Lord, Humble our hearts and humble our minds. Bring peace to our our restless souls and attentions and help us to humble ourselves to your word. Uh, Help us to not sit over your word and cast judgment on your word, but help us in this moment to submit ourselves to your word. And may you speak through it and transform us to the hearing of your word. 
May we be changed into the image of your son and likeness of your son. May we be conformed in the renewing of our mind to your purposes and plans for us. We ask these things, Lord, that you may be made much of in our life and, and in this city. And we ask these things through the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Chapter four, there's no pause. When this letter was read in the church, they would read, they would say, and if you are Christ and you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, and the, they wouldn't say, the priest wouldn't say, okay, now, chapter four, verse one. Here we go. This is actually a letter. There's no pause in the thought. There's no pause in the process. He's about to explain what he just said and unpack it a little bit more, and we're just gonna go verse by verse, phrase by phrase, and try to understand what Paul was saying and what he's showing us. So verse one, here's what I mean. I mean that the heir... As long as he is a child, it is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under the guardians and managers until the date that is set by the father. So here's a picture Paul's going to give us of what he's talking about, about being heirs of the inheritance, heirs of the promise, heirs of the gospel that God had spoken of beforehand. He's talking about an unlimited amount of resources, but a limited amount of actual experience. This picture is a picture of someone who has unlimited resources, but very limited rights. When you think about it, you can think about the stories of of Chinese emperors who were made emperor when they were eight and nine years old. You can think about the boy king of Israel, Josiah, who who was made king when he was still yet a boy. There were these people in the ancient world who, who would be put into these places of authority and position when they were just kids. They couldn't rule. They couldn't lead an army into battle. They couldn't govern nations and empires. And so what would happen is they had the status of full rights of heirs of the promise and of the throne and of the authority of the kingdom but their father had set them up under guardians and managers and teachers who would train them in the ways that they needed to go, the things that they needed to know, to bring them to the place where he could confer upon them the status of adult, the status of son, the status of man. And the readers, the, the people who heard this when it was spoken in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the temples, when it was read, when this letter was read to the crowds, the Jews would have heard this and they would have said, ah, exactly, we've been celebrating this for years. We, we call it what? What's it called? Still to this day, called a bar mitzvah. There was a point in time for the Jewish culture still celebrated today where the father would raise his son and teach his son and train his son and employ the rabbis and the teachers of the temple to train his son in the things that were necessary for him to know to become a man. And when the time had come, he'd stand his son up and the father would actually pray, thank you, God, for blessing me and delivering me now from the responsibility of this boy. The father would actually thank God and thank God and praise God for the blessing of delivering that boy to God. Now he's no longer my responsibility. He's a man. And the boy would, would, would read a portion of the Torah and, and recite a response to that. And, and the people who were sitting there who had a Jewish background understood what Paul was getting to. There's a time and a place that, that you're being trained, that you're full, the full rights, the full status of, of the heir of a promise is there, but your experience of it is limited. You're not quite there yet to live out the full experience of the promise that's yours. The, the Greeks or the Romans who were in the crowd, who had that kind of background, they would have understood the same thing. You see, in, in Roman culture and in Roman times, when a child was born, he was actually under the responsibility of his father from the age of one to the age of 17. From the age of 17 to the age of 19, he actually was a property of the state. He would go and he would serve the state, most oftentimes in battle somewhere. And at the end of that time, when he had served the state and he had been trained by his father for all of those years, the father would examine him 
and determine if he had learned all that he was to learn and served his debt not only to the family but to society. And at that point, the boy would come before this big ceremony and this big celebration of all the family and all the friends. And up until that time, his, his cloak or his toga or his, his garment had been white like his dad's, but it had this purple rim around it. And you could always tell who had not yet been conferred the status of adulthood or manhood by the fact he had this purple rim around his garment. But in this ceremony, the father would stand up and he would actually reclothe his son as a man. He would actually take from him that garment that had that rim around it and he would declare his son a man. And he would now dress him in the same white garment that he wore. And he would allow him into the same places that he went. And that boy would now be a peer with his father. His father had actually conferred upon him the status of, of manhood. But until then, the father had employed guardians and managers to help train him in the things that he needed to know. There were things that he had to learn. And, and just a, a little bit of a sidebar, this actually exposes one of the deepest problems that we deal with in our culture and our society today. We have no idea how to determine when a boy actually becomes a man. There is no agreed upon status anymore in this country that can determine when a boy actually becomes a man. It's not 16 when he drives. It's not 18 when he can fight. It's not 21 when he can drink. Driving, fighting, and drinking don't make a person a man. And we have no agreed upon status in this culture of when a boy actually becomes a man. What things does he need to know? What things does he need to be able to do? The reality of it was in the first century and for centuries on, up until, up until shortly before the Industrial Revolution, the process of a boy becoming a man, the process of leaving childhood behind and maturing and moving on toward maturation was in the hands of the father. The father was actually the one who determined when his son actually became a man. The father was actually the one that conferred upon the son the rights of becoming a man. But today we have an absolute crisis in manhood, an absolute crisis in paternal rights, an absolute crisis in the role of fathers in this country, and we have no set of understanding of when a boy becomes a man. And so we've got young men, middle-aged men, and old men acting like children, acting like teenagers. And if you don't believe me, just go to Vegas. Just go visit it sometime. Old men acting like little boys who still at some point during their time there probably need someone else to still change their clothes for them. We have an absolute crisis of determining when a boy becomes a man. But in the first century, during this time, it was the responsibility of the father. So Paul said, we, we had been like these boys. We had been like these kids. We had the status. We were an heir. We had all of the rights, but we didn't have the realized freedom. There was still a, a limit to the freedom that we actually experienced. And so in the end, we might as well, like Paul said, have been a slave. Because those kids, we had all the rights. We were heirs. We were still under the guardianship, the managerial process of our fathers or of the people he had employed. So verse 3, let's go. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. See, there was a time for these people in their lives, if they came from a Gentile background, that they were actually emotionally, mentally, and spiritually enslaved to the idea that the elementary spirits, some of your Bibles will actually say, controlled and ran the universe. Earth, moon, wind, fire. The elementary spirits of the world, they actually believed, held sway and held control over the earth, so they worshiped them. They gave themselves to them. 
They sacrificed to them in the hopes that they could be blessed by them, and they were enslaved to this idea that their life and the world were run by these elementary spirits. And, and the people with Jewish backgrounds were enslaved to the idea that the freedom that they were after and the freedom that they longed for and the freedom they thought was to be theirs was held in being able to obey the law. But they could never do it perfectly. And so they found themselves enslaved to the elementary idea that the law was to bring them the kind of freedom that God had promised them forever and he had spoken of through the prophets. And so there was a time that we were enslaved, but verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. When the fullness of time had come, the father said, now is the time. Just like they would have understood in the process from becoming a boy to a man, it was in the hands of the father. Paul just said, when the fullness of time had come, when eternity was pregnant with God's purposes and plans, God decided, now is the time, here is what I'm going to do. God determined that he was going to send his son to do for us what we never could do for ourselves. In the fullness of time, God determined to act for us, to be God for us, that we could actually be his people. And why did he do it? Verse 5, this is where it's going to start getting really good. Verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. What Paul just said, and this has been the most staggering thing for me for the last month or two, what Paul just said was that God's purposes in adoption and adopting us as his children were greater than his purposes in redemption. God's purposes that we've talked about for the last few weeks in redeeming us from our eternal enslavement to sin, to death, and to Satan, never being able to stop sinning, never being able to stop dying, never being able to release ourselves from the bondage of, of the shame and the guilt that was stood against us before God because of our sin, that God sent his son to redeem us from that slavery, to set us free, we talked about last week, from that slavery, that we might live a life of freedom before God that he had intended for us before the foundations of the earth, that he had done what we couldn't do to to set us free by becoming a sacrifice for us, we talked about a few weeks ago, actually living the life that we were meant to live and then laying his life down on a cross to die for the life we live instead, becoming a curse for us, becoming sin for us, exhausting the wrath of God in our place that was due to us so that we could be made righteous and stand before God forgiven, so that our sins could be passed away, we saw, from the east to the west. Our record before God could be blotted away, that we could stand before God forgiven, righteous, justified, set free from that kind of slavery. Paul just said, as great as all of that is, that was not God's ultimate purpose. He did all of that, not so that you could wander around in your life saying, yay, I'm not a slave anymore. Yay, I'm not just set free from the sin anymore, left to wander around by yourself. He did that, setting us free, forgiving us, making us righteous, that he could bring us to himself and call us his kids, his children, Adoption is God's purpose that supersedes his purpose of redemption. God redeemed us, became a sacrifice for us, set us free so that we could actually become his kids. He did not leave us with the status of forgiveness. He didn't just leave us with the status of justified. He didn't leave us just with the status of righteous. He drew us to himself. He did this that we might be reconciled to him, not just as friends, but as sons, sons and 
daughters. I can't not do this. Go to Ephesians 1. Go to Ephesians 1. We'll do this fast. Ephesians 1. I think if I typed it out, so I don't have to look it up. Okay, Ephesians 1. Look at this. You've got to read this. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. We had this unbelievable capacity in the church to simply focus on what we've been saved from, to talk about all the things that God has done to set us free from the guilt of sin, the curse of sin, to set us free from the, the, the guilty status that we, we had before him, that now we're, we're free, forgiven, we're righteous, we're justified. We've been saved from all of that, all the while forgetting what he saved us to. We have this unbelievable capacity to forget what God actually saved us to, and that he actually saved us to himself. I mean, unbelievable idea. I thought it was ludicrous. One of my favorite pastors wrote a book a few years ago called God is the Gospel. I thought, what a silly concept to actually explain the gospel in that way. I think we all get that. Until I actually begin to think about the fact that I never actually get that. I actually continue to wallow around in this idea that God simply did all that he did to save us from these things while never really thinking about what God saved me to in himself. I've made all these other things the pinnacle of God's work for me and his glory, and they're amazing things. If he had just forgiven us and just made us righteous and just justified us and just blotted our sin out and just made, given us a new status and record, that would be amazing enough. But he did all of that, that we might become his children, that we might be able to call him father, that we might be his kids and have a relationship with him. Man, Ephesians 1, look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's what we're taking these weeks to look at. All of these blessings, all of these riches that are ours in Christ because of what God has done. Even as he chose us, verse four, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Before the foundation of the world, before anything that is ever was, before anything that we know exists came into being by God speaking it and by God determining that it would come, God set forth in his heart, in his mind, in his will to destine us for adoption. Have you ever thought about that? I have been absolutely floored for the last few weeks by this. Before anything, before he created anything, God purposed to call us to himself as his kids, which means God's creation of the world, God's creation of the universe, God's creation of everything that is was the stage that he determined to play this drama out on. He created all the things that we see. He created all the things that he spoke into existence to be the place where he played out the drama and the purpose of creating and calling us to be his children. Before he created anything, he purposed, he purposed to destine us for adoption. It was his idea. It was his ultimate purpose. In love, before the beginning of anything, is where the idea of God calling us his children and adopting us to himself actually has its origin. What else does Paul say? Paul says it all comes through Jesus. This is where Paul says everything that we've talked about so far, all the things we've talked about in the last few weeks, redemption, justification, propitiation, the forgiveness, the sacrifice, the exhausting of God's wrath in our place, expiation, the wiping away of all of our sins from the God's presence, all of the things that have been done for us by God through Jesus, all of those things were for the purpose of calling us his kids, were for the purpose of adoption. 
Before the foundation of the world, in his love, God determined that he would do all that needed to be done so that his glory and his grace could be made known through the process of calling us his children. And everything that he did for us in Jesus was done for us to get to the point where we could be adopted by God as his kids. Why? To the praise of his grace and of his glory, that we could not say we did anything to merit it, anything that we could do to deserve it. God purposed before all things, in the presence of all eternity, to call us his kids by his grace, for his glory, and he'd do it through Jesus. Unbelievable. Unbelievable when you begin to unpack what this actually means and the, the impact that it begins to have on our hearts and on our minds when we actually begin to grasp what's being said. Um, yeah, we've got time. What was, what was this like in this culture? I mean, to really understand adoption, to really understand what this means, to really understand what Paul's getting at when he's saying this in Galatians and Ephesians, what was adoption actually like in the Roman culture? Uh, unlike ours, adoption was not primarily done by families looking for babies. Adoption was not done in the Roman culture where a family would go and, and find an infant or find a baby and bring them into their home and raise them. Adoption was actually done by predominantly wealthy families who didn't have a male heir to pass their inheritance onto or their, or their legacy onto. They would actually go and get a young man. They would find a man who had put himself as an indentured servant or an indentured slave most often by debt that he had to someone or debt that he had to society or an allegiance or an obligation that he had to someone that made him an indentured slave. And a wealthy family would go and find a man, usually a young man, that had made himself a slave to pay off a debt and they would actually adopt him and bring them into his, their family so they could confer the right of sonship on him and that their inheritance and their legacy and their family could be continued on through him. And there were a few things that happened when a child was adopted, when a man was adopted in, in the Roman times. The first thing that happened is all of his obligations and all of his debts, everything he owed to society or, or whoever he had committed himself to, they were all wiped away. All of the debts that he had that put him in the position that he found himself in as a slave through the process of adoption were wiped away. All the allegiances that he had committed himself to all the obligations that he had committed himself to for whatever reason that got him into it, wiped away, wiped away. No longer a slave, now a son. Unbelievable. All of the obligations, all of the debt that we had before God because of our sin, adopted by God, is wiped away. Unbelievable. All of it. We've spent weeks talking about this. When God calls us his children, and he adopts us as his children. All of that stuff, all that we owe, all that sin had mounted up against us, all of that debt, unbelievably wiped away. The other thing that happened, one of the other things that happened when a young man was adopted by a family and brought in, not only were his debts and obligations wiped away, he was actually given a new status legally. Legally before that, he was actually considered a slave an indentured servant of whatever family or whatever organization that he served. Now, legally, he's no longer a slave. He's actually a son. Legally, he is proclaimed a son of this family who has called him, who has brought him in, and who has cared for him. Just, just think. Legally. Before God, because of our sin. Before God had done, has done what he has done for us in Jesus. We stood guilty before God. Legally, we were slaves to sin, unrighteousness, and death. 
before God adopted us and called us to himself and brought us to himself in his family, we were actually slaves to sin. And now legally, because of what God has done for us in Jesus, we are no longer slaves. We are actually called sons. Problem is, we don't actually believe that with our hearts. We tend to measure our evaluation and our status as sons because all of you will nod your heads. I don't think the idea of being a child of God is a foreign concept for the majority of people in here, especially not in this country. And so you can nod your head and say, I see that. Yeah, I've heard that. I've got that. But your heart betrays you. I listen to you. Your heart betrays you. Your experience of this reality betrays you. We nod our heads and we say, I get it. Children of God, sons of God, been adopted by God, but we measure the reality of that status by the way that we actually feel. We don't feel like sons very much. We don't feel like children of God very often. And what Paul has just said, and by using this idea of adoption, is that when God has adopted you and he has called you to himself and to his family, and you have become his child, legally you are no longer what you were. You do not have to measure your acceptance and status before God by the way that you feel. You can actually know by believing, by faith, because of what he has done, that this is who you are. It is not measured by your capacity to perform before him. Unbelievable. Your status as a child of God, as a son or daughter of God, and his love toward you and calling you to himself is not measured by your ability to perform. It's unbelievable. Listen, here's the best way I can explain it. I don't do a lot of things well. I'm not the smartest. I didn't go into all the the honors classes. I didn't test well. I cheated a lot in school and got caught when I finally got to college and couldn't do anything. But the one thing I could actually do is play sports. That's just it. My grandfather was a professional athlete. My dad played three sports in college. I played two sports. It's just what I do. I can pick sports up pretty easily. Physically, that stuff isn't a challenge to me. Um, My son, not the most agile kid you'll see. Um, He's enormous, which works against him. Um, He's young, and his his body is a whole lot bigger than his brain, and so I think he'll, he'll grow into it, but he's not the most agile kid in the world. But what kind of dad would I be? Seriously, what what kind of dad would I be if because of my desire for him to perform for me when he was 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 months old, 14 months old, and he still wasn't walking, um, that I I would hover, what kind of dad would I be if if I hovered over my son and belittled my son and pushed my son to be the earliest and the fastest and the the hardest walker there was, and when he fell down, I said, come on, can't you get it? Just, Just get up. Come on, you can do this. Get up, quit crying, get walking. Belittling my son for not being the earliest and not being the fastest, but the reality of it is, this is the way that the majority of us understand who God is towards us as our father, that you actually believe that he's sitting up there looking at us going, gosh, Robert, can't you just get it right? For the hundredth time, can't you just get this one thing right? How long is it going to take you for this to actually sink in? When are you actually going to do all of these things that I have told you to do and I have called you to do? Come on! We actually think that God is sitting there looking for us and waiting for us to to fall so that he can jump on us and belittle us. And the reality of it is that's, that's not who he is at all. Our 
status before him is not measured by our capacity to perform for him. The Bible actually says that God is this father who is sitting up in heaven who actually delights, the Bible says, in his children. Actually delights in his children. And so that we, like my son, when he was 9, 10, 11, 12 months old, could let go of that chair or that coffee table and begin to weeble-wobble across the floor until he falls. That God is actually sitting there like I was, exploding, not with frustration, but with joy exploding that he took four steps before he fell. Praise God, buddy. And I'm not sitting over him and judging him going, you had to take six. I was looking for you to take seven. When are you actually going to get ten? The rest of the kids walk across the room. Come on. That God is exploding, but not with frustration, but with joy. And he picks us up, dusts us off. He sets us back on our feet, and we go again. Our status before God is not slave that has to perform some kind of duty to receive whatever was promised. It's son. It's daughter. It's a child of God. And it's not determined by how we feel. It's not determined by how we, what we do. The process of growing in our maturation isn't a one-time event. Adoption is a point-in-time event when God calls us to himself. We mature in a process called sanctification and maturation, and we'll talk about that in the weeks to come. But this is what Paul is talking about. This is what people would hear when he would say, God, in all that he has done for us in Jesus, in redeeming us to calling us to himself through adoption, this is it. All of your debt, it's gone. Your obligation is gone. Your status, absolutely changed. No longer a slave, now a son. Here's the craziest thing. You're now part of the family. And not just a Lego, kind of an addition. And this is one of the things that's really difficult to grasp. I've wrestled with this one a lot because I think I can explain it, but practically I'm not sure I experience it all that often in my heart. I struggle with it. You're now a part of the family. You're not an addition. You're not this strange member, this sore thumb, this foster child that has no security, that has no real connection to the family. You're a son. You're a child. You are part of the family. And conferred upon you are all the rights and privileges of being a son or a daughter of God. You are a co-heir, a brother and a sister with Jesus. Unbelievable. You don't really believe that. If we actually believe that, certain things about our life would be very different. Now, some of us try to believe that, and we twist it to try to get something from God that he hasn't intended for us to have by claiming some divine paternal right that he's a king, so therefore I'm a prince, and princes drive chariots, so, you know, it's not what he's talking about. You are a part of God's family, a child Listen to what Jesus actually says about this. I don't know that I made a slide for this because I didn't know if I was going to go there. But listen to what Jesus says in Luke 12, 32. This is Jesus talking. He's talking to his disciples. And he says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. This is Jesus talking. And here's what struck me. This phrase, has been pleased, is only used five other times in the entire New Testament. It's 
only five other places in the New Testament where you'll find the phrase, has been pleased. Three of them are in the Gospels talking about Jesus, and you see it when he was baptized, and God the Father is speaking to Jesus after he's baptized, saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am pleased. The other time you find it is when Jesus has taken his disciples to the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus has actually shown the glory of God through him himself and he's taking his three disciples to the top of, of, of the Mount and God actually has to tell Peter to stop talking. Actually has to tell him to shut up and to pay attention to his son whom he's very pleased with. And so Jesus is now talking to his disciples and he's, it's as if he's actually saying, look, the pleasure my father had in me and expressed in these moments when I was fulfilling his will <clears throat> in obedience and love in baptism, the pleasure God has in me when you saw me transfigured on the mount and the glory of the father shining through and he says he's pleased, the pleasure that the father has in me that he expressed in that he has in you and that pleasure gives him delight and joy to give you all that's mine. Unbelievable. Jesus just said, the only other times you have heard these words come from the mouth of the Father were about me at the times when I was displaying his glory, when I was baptized, the Holy Spirit descends upon me, I begin the ministry that God's called me to, and I've taken you to the top of the mountain and shown you God's glory, and he has proclaimed that he is pleased in his Son, and I'm telling you, this is how much he loves you, that he is this pleased with you, that you are a co-heir with me, and your Father doesn't love you any less doesn't love you any less. Sure, there is an absolutely unique dynamic to the paternal relationship of God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son, but this is what he just said. You are now a co-heir with me, and he loves you no less. You've got to get your head around that. And the only way you can begin to get your head around that is your heart has to begin to, to grasp it. He just said he is displeased to give you the kingdom. Listen to this. I, I was just struggling with how to... How to, how to con- comprehend this because I could realize how often my heart and my soul betrays my brain and my ability to get it. This is a sentence about the nature of God. It's about the kind heart that God has. It's a verse about what makes God glad, not merely about what God will do or what he has to do, but what he delights to do, what he loves to do, and what he takes pleasure in doing. Listen to J.I. Packer. He says it best. He said, God receives us as sons and he loves us with the same steadfast affection with which he eternally loves his beloved and only begotten. This is what got me and I haven't been able to get away from this for weeks. There are no distinctions of affection in the divine family. There are no distinctions of affections in the divine family. We can't believe that because it's not the way that we actually live. Not even in relation to God, but with one another. If you have siblings, all of you think your parents love another one more than you. Doesn't matter how many that you have. All of you think somebody is somebody else's favorite. And we have this unbelievable capacity to transfer that experience and frustration in our heart onto God. But here's what Jesus just said. There is actually no distinction of affection in this family that you've been adopted into. Packer goes on and says, we are all loved just as fully as Jesus is loved. This and nothing less than this is what adoption means. No wonder that John cried out in his letter, 1 John, 
Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that he has called us his kids. Behold. I mean, there's just, we don't have an English translation. It's people jumping up and down, waving their arms, clapping their hands, getting attention. Look, you've got to see this. Look at the manner of love that God the Father has for us. He has now called us his kids. And there is no distinction of affection. There's no distinction of affection. And if that's not enough, man, we're running short on time. We may have to take two weeks on this. If that's not enough, look what Paul says in verse 6. If it's not enough for our status to be changed, to no longer be slaves but to be sons, if it's not enough for our debts and our obligations to be wiped away, if it's not enough to be brought into the family of God where there is no distinction of affection, we find ourselves co-heirs, brothers, sisters with Jesus himself. Paul says this, and I love this, because your sons, God has spent the, sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Unbelievably Trinitarian view of what God has done for us. We have been saved by the power of the Holy Spirit through the work of Jesus Christ to the intimacy that we have with the Father because of his adoption for us. By the power of God's Spirit through the work of his Son to intimacy with God the Father. God planned it, God purchased it, and now by his Spirit, God actually applies it to us. And there's a couple things about this prayer, this cry that I want to talk about before we leave. This, this word, Abba, this idea, Abba, it's actually just a simple Aramaic word for dad. It's made up of two words, Ab and Ba in Aramaic. Ab meant father, dad. Ba made it positional. So in that culture, I would talk about Chris's dad and I would call him Ab. But when you add that second part, Ba, to it, making it positional, you can only say that about your own dad. You can only say it about your own dad. It makes it relational. So Abba is talking about your father particularly. That's why you'll hear it talked about and people will translate, well, how do we actually speak about our fathers when we're young? The only word we've got is, is daddy. But here's the thing. When you grow from being a child to being an adult, you can still call your father dad and they'd be just as affectionate and it'd be just as sincere and just as tender. There's no need to over-sentimentalize this whole daddy thing. There's no reason to think that the most proper way to actually talk about God as a grown adult is to figure out how in my heart I get to the place where I can pray, Daddy, like a three-year-old or four-year-old. I'm a man, and I have a very real affection for my father, and I call him Dad. And when I was a son I, and a boy, I called him Daddy. So what he's talking about with this, this prayer is this relational connection that we have to our Father, who is God. And there's a couple of things about this that were absolutely amazing to me that began to change how I understood this. There's an amazing book that I received recently called Adopted for Life by this guy named Russell Moore. And one of the things he talked about in this book is this whole prayer and this aspect of of God adopting us to himself and giving us the spirit to cry out, Abba, Father. And one of the things that he said is that this whole idea of crying out Abba has been hijacked by, for the most part, a a psychological movement and a 
emotional movement and that this isn't some cooing like a child would coo towards his dad. This isn't like a cooing like my little daughter does to me where he makes, she makes this little noise trying to get my attention, this sweet little affectionate thing. And in the church, we've tended to read this and teach this and project this out to people that this means that you can sit there and you can talk about him being your daddy and, and sweet and soft and caring. And that's not at all what he's talking about here. That's not at all what this cry that the Holy Spirit produces in our souls on our behalf is all about. Moore actually says this is a, a primal cry. This is a primal scream. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, pouring himself out in the garden before his crucifixion, not with his hands over a rock, gently pressed together with his hair flowing and a light coming down and him looking up to, to God, just asking for a sweet deliverance from what's about to come. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in the garden before his crucifixion, crying out to his Father to be delivered from what was about to happen. If there was any other way that you can do this, any other way that you can fulfill the promise that you've made before all of time, that I know, I know what you're doing. If there's any other way that you can do it, let this cup pass. These are cries that came out from the Son of God to the point that the blood vessels in his head began to sweat blood. This isn't, oh, Daddy, hmm, please. This is, my God, deliver me. Save me. If there's any other way, let it be. He says that God has has given us his spirit that cries out in our souls, Father, if there's any any other way, Daddy, please, this is my son who's fallen and he's broken his collarbone and he gets up and there's nothing else to do but to cry out, Dad, Daddy, screaming, come, get me, rescue me, help me, do this. God has given us this by his spirit to cry out for us that we can know that this world isn't, isn't all that there is. One of the reasons he's given us this spirit to cry out is because we're not to be satisfied by the pleasures and the deceitfulness of sin in this world, that we were made for so much more, but we get so deluded and we get so comfortable and we get so deceived that God has given us his spirit to cry out on our behalf, partly one, that we can never, we can never be comfortable, that we can know there was so much more. The other reason he gives us this spirit to, that cries out is precisely what we've talked about already. We have this unbelievably self-deluding capacity to not actually experience the things we know to be true. And God gave us his spirit. He gave us the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. The same spirit that hovered over the waters in creation. He gave us this spirit that we could know, that we could experience the reality of the assurance of being his son, of being his daughter. Listen to this. Sinclair Ferguson said, the reality of God's love for us is often the last thing in the world to dawn upon us. We fix our eyes on ourselves, we fix our eyes on our past failures, we fix our eyes on our present guilt, and it seems impossible that the Father could actually love us the way that he says. We have a hard time believing it's real. We have the status of sons, but we have the mindset of a slave. So maybe God sent the Spirit into our hearts to cry out, because we need such assurance of our adoption. 
You can be adopted and not experience being a son. You can be forgiven and not actually feel that way. So maybe God sent his son to become a curse for us so that we could receive the status of sons and maybe he sent his spirit to assure us eternally that we are indeed his children. What a dad. What a dad. He demonstrates his love for us in this. This is how he demonstrates his love, his concern, his care, his love for his children. He does for us what we could not do and he calls us to himself. He actually takes the initiative and does not wait for us to wrestle with not feeling like a son. He actually loves us in such a way that the doubt never needs to be there. You know, my son never doubts his status before me unless I actually create that doubt. You know, his son, my son never wrestles with how much I love him or if, he, if I really love him enough or, or any of those fears that you get about whether or not your dad or mom loves you. They never actually happen unless you give them reason to actually happen. And here's what God's done. He has demonstrated his love in this. Before you ever experience the feeling of not knowing you're a son, he came and did this for us that we could be called his children. He didn't wait for us to go, okay, you call me your, ch- your child, but I don't necessarily feel that way. Okay, well, now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my spirit so that you can have assurance of this affection, assurance of this relationship, assurance of this adoption. He said, no, this is what I've done. Before you even get to that point, here's how much I love you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to adopt you to myself. I'm going to call you my child. I'm going to wipe away your debts. I'm going to make you my son. I'm going to make you my daughter. I'm going to give you my spirit that will cry out to me that you will know and be able to experience the reality of your status before me so that you may never have to doubt because it's going to get complicated. Everything is going to come against our understanding and our experience of this reality. All the deception will come to try to get us and tempt us to believe that this really isn't the case. And he said, I'm not going to leave you to yourself. I'm going to give you my spirit. And this is what he's done. And he's, oh, if we could just begin to actually believe it. Look, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that I believe it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that I don't wrestle with these things, that I don't find myself more often than I really want to actually admit evaluating my status before God and how much he loves me and my presence before him as a son by how I actually behave. I do it. I'm as guilty of it as anyone, but here's the thing. As we begin to believe it, as we begin to set our our minds on it, Deuteronomy 15, 15, uh, one of my favorite scriptures when I was studying this, God spoke to his people Israel and he said, remember this, that at one time you were slaves. Remember, this is who you were. You were slaves, but I have redeemed you from that and called you to myself. This is what God said to do. This is the reality of who you were, but this is what I have done. And the more we set our hearts and our minds upon this reality, the more we meditate upon this reality, the more we put this in front of our hearts and put this in front of our eyes, the deeper it begins to sink into our our souls. John Newton Famous hymn writer wrote Amazing Grace. After he got saved, he actually took Deuteronomy 15, 15 and wrote it down and he put it up on the mirror in his ship in his bathroom and he put it in his Bible and he kept it in his journal and everywhere he went before he did anything in front of him all the time was that verse, Deuteronomy 15, 15. Remember that you were a slave, but I have redeemed you and set you free and called you to myself. Kind of ironic because he was one of the most famous slave traders in the ancient world and here he is remembering this is who I am. This is who I was without God. And he can go on to pen great things like amazing grace as he would let the reality of what God has done for him 
in Jesus and how he's called him to himself become the foundation and the way in which he understood who he was. The way we do that is simply by putting it in front of us, reminding ourselves of it, believing it in the face of unbelievably, unbelievably heavy odds and temptations. God has actually done what he has said he will do. He has actually done what he said he has done. And it's not measured by how well we believe it or how much we experience it or how many tingles and goosebumps we have when we sit in church or how many tingles or goosebumps we have when we're sitting by ourselves and we try to think about him. It's not measured by any of that. It's not measured by how many rules you keep or how many things you do. It's not measured by how much you think you perform for him and how much you've earned his love. It's measured simply by what Jesus has done on our behalf and God's word of calling us to himself as his sons because of Jesus. That's what it's measured by and we've got to actually begin to believe it. You actually have to begin to believe it. I mean, it simply comes down to, to, to this one simple thing. And it comes down to what you actually believe about it. And you can answer one question. Are you a slave or are you a son? Are you a slave or are you a son? If you're a son, why are you acting like a slave? That's where Paul's going to go in the rest of Galatians. We don't have time for it. If you're a son, why are you acting like a slave? This is what I have done. This, God says, is what I have done in setting you free and calling you to myself. Why? Why do you continue to submit yourself to things I have set you free from? I have called you my son. I have called you to myself. I have made you my child. Are you going to actually believe it? Are we actually going to believe it? As a church, are we actually going to believe that? Is that actually going to begin to be a way that we understand who we are in relationship to God? Our adoption is an event. It's a thing that has occurred through Christ, is applied to us and experienced by us and assured to us by his spirit. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we set free. It's not something that we lose. It's something that's been done to us, for us, by God. Why don't we believe it? Let me pray. Jesus, there are there are way too many times in my day, way too many days in my week and weeks in my months that I can talk about these things, I can explain these things, and I think I might be the most deluded of all people in here because I do this the most. But my heart betrays my brain and it betrays my mouth. And I can nod in agreement that I know these things. I can nod in agreement that I can talk about these things. I can, I can talk about you and your love for me like I talk about a celebrity that I've never even met. I can talk about them like I actually know them. And I can get caught relating to you the same way. That's not the way I want to know you. I do not want to belittle what you have done for me and for us through Jesus and him giving up his life so that I could could step away from what you have given me and calling me your son. You have saved me from yourself to yourself. You have saved me from the judgment that was due to me because of my sin through your son and you have called me to yourself to know you as my father and you're a good dad. You're a good dad. My prayer for my heart and my soul, my prayer for everyone in here, my prayer for this church is that we would begin to believe that.
that we would begin to believe that. And if we've been living our lives like slaves, if we've been living our lives in slavery to the elemental ideas that we actually have to earn your love, the elemental ideas and elementary ideas that we actually have to do right things to make ourselves right before you love us, but I, I pray that you set us free from that, that you continue to set us free from the idea that we have to make ourselves acceptable before you'll accept us, but that you have accepted us because of your son, that Jesus has made us acceptable by giving us his life, by suffering our death, and that you have made us acceptable in your sight, and not only that, you now have called us sons. This is what we want to believe. This is how we want to live. This is what needs to change our lives and change our souls, change our families. This is what needs to change us. This is what we'll be fought against. This is what we will be tempted to not believe. So Jesus, please, please continue to, please continue to draw us to yourself in this. And do work in our hearts in a way that only you can do to make this real, to make this alive to make us aware of where in our life we're living like slaves. We've been given the full inheritance as sons, but we can choose to continue to choose to live our life like a slave. Lord, help us to see where that is. Help us to repent. Help us to confess. And help us to raise our arms and run to you like our Father. Because you've accepted us because of your Son, Jesus, who is our brother. Unbelievable. We ask these things, Lord, that as our, we begin to believe them and be changed by them, that you would get glory. We would not get glory. There's nothing about this that glorifies us. There's nothing about this that makes us look good. There's nothing about this that makes a great name for us. But as we believe this, your name is made great. You receive glory. We receive the unbelievable, unspeakable joy of being your kids. Thank you, Lord, for doing this for us, for planning this before time, for purchasing this through your son, and for now giving it to us and applying it to us by your spirit. Amen.